Hello, everybody. This is Ali Moon. You are listening to The Lovers. Oh, my God. Where am I? I'm not at The Lovers Book and Poetry Club. I'm at Lyrical Audio Candy Tour. This is going to get really confusing. Hmm. Maybe I should get a uniform. Maybe I should. Or a hat. Or some sort of special shoes <laughs> to remind myself of where I am. I need a uniform, a very nice work uniform. Yes, and they'll be different, different colors, so I can keep it all straight. Welcome back. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to spend it with me, to listen to letters six through nine of Dangerous Liaisons, a book by Pierre Chalon de la Clore, narrated by myself, Ali Moon. All right. This is Lyrical Audio Candy Tour. This is where we explore books, poetry, and quotes that please every taste. Every taste. You like sweet. You like sour. You like sometimes tart and tangy, bitter. Do you like salty? <laughs> Whatever taste you have, I've got something for you. All right, that was just the most whimsical, bizarre intro. But that's me, so I know you like me. You're here, so... All right, hang tight, and here we go. Letter 6. The Vicomte du Vermont to the Marquise du Matoy. So there is not a woman in the whole world who does not abuse the influence she has acquired. Even you, whom I was wont to call my kind friend, you have ceased to be one and do not shrink from attacking me concerning the object of my affections. How dare you portray Madame de Tovel like that? Any man would pay for such outrageous insolence with his life. Any other woman but you would have deserved punishment at the very least. I beg you not try me so sorely. I cannot answer for my ability to withstand it. In the name of friendship, Wait until I have possessed the woman, if you wish to insult her. Do you not know the only pleasure has the right to untie the blindfold from love's eyes? But what am I saying? Does Madame de Tovel need to put on an act? No. In order to be adorable, all she has to do is be herself. You say she is plainly dressed. And so she is. All ornament spoils her. Everything that hides her detracts from her beauty. In the abandonment of the déjà she is truly ravishing. Thanks to the exhaustingly hot weather we are having, I can see her supple curves through her simple linen gown. A single muslin kerchief covers her breasts and my eyes. Covert, but penetrating. You've already taken the measure of her enchanting contours. Her face, you say, is without expression. But what should it express in the moments when nothing speaks to her heart? No, it is quite true that she does not have, unlike her coquettes, that falseness which sometimes seduces, but invariably deceives. 
She does not know how to disguise an empty phrase with a studied smile. And though she has the most beautiful teeth in the world, she only laughs at what she finds truly amusing. But you should see what a picture of a naive and frank gaiety she presents when we play games. Her look of pure joy, goodness, and compassion. When she is near some poor wretch she is anxious to help, you should see how, especially at the slightest word of praise or flattery, her heavenly face takes on a touching embarrassment, which is quite unaffected. She is chaste and religious, and you therefore judge her to be cold and lifeless. I think the opposite. What astonishing sensitivity must she have to extend those feelings even to her husband and carry on loving a person who was never there? What stronger proof could you ask for? And yet, I have been able to discover more. I contrived a walk, so we would need to cross a large ditch, although she is very nimble. She is yet more timid. You can well understand that a prude would be afraid to take a tumble. She had to entrust herself to me. I had this modest woman in my arms. Our preparations and the carrying over of my old aunt had made the merry devotee laugh out loud. But the moment I grasped her with a deliberate awkwardness, our arms intertwined around each other. I pressed her bosom against mine. And in that brief interval, I felt her heart beating ever more rapidly. A lovely blush came over her face, and her embarrassed modesty told me straight away that her heart had palpated with love and not with fear. However, my aunt made the same mistake as you and started to say, The child is afraid! But the child's charming candor did not allow her to tell a lie. And she naively replied, Oh no, but... That one word told me everything. From that moment on, sweet hope replaced cruel anguish. I shall have this woman. I shall take her away from the husband who defiles her. I shall dare to ravage her even from the god that she adores. How delicious to be both object and conqueror of her remorse. Far be it from me to destroy the prejudices which beset her. They will only add to my happiness and my triumph. Let her believe in virtue, but let her sacrifice it for my sake. Let her be terrified in her sins, but unable to prevent herself from committing them. And... Agitated by a thousand terrors, let her be able to forget and overcome only in my arms. May she say with my consent, I adore you. She alone of all women will be worthy to utter those words. I shall indeed be the god she worships before all others. Let us be frank. In our own relationship, unemotional as it is uncomplicated, what we call happiness is scarcely a pleasure. Shall I tell you plainly? I thought my heart had withered away, and with nothing but sensualities left to me, I was bemoaning my premature old age. Madame de Tavel, 
has given me back the charming illusions of my youth when I am with her. I have no need to pretend to be happy. The only thing which frightens me is the time this affair will take me, for I cannot risk leaving anything to chance. It is no use reminding myself of the bold strategies that have succeeded in the past. I cannot make up my mind to use them. If I am to be truly happy, she must give herself to me. And it is no small matter. I am certain you will admire my prudence. The word love has not been altered, but we already talk about confidence and interest. So in order to deceive her as little as possible, and especially to forestall what might happen, if she were to hear rumours about me, I have myself told her, as though admitting my faults, some of my more famous traits. You would laugh to see how solemnly she preaches at me. She says she wishes to convert me. She does not yet suspect what it will cost her to try. She is a long way from supposing that, by pleading for the unfortunate woman I have deceived, in her parlance, she is pleading in her own cause in advance. This idea struck me yesterday in the middle of one of her sermons, and I could not resist interrupting to assure her that she spoke like one of the prophets. <sighs> Farewell, my dearest. As you see, I am not quite a lost cause. P.S. By the way, has the poor Chavonier killed himself yet in desperation? Truly, you are a hundred times worse than I am. And if I had any self-respect, you'd put me to shame. From the Chateau de 9, August 17. Letter 7. Cécile Volange to Sophie Carnet. If I have not mentioned my marriage, it is because I know no more than I did at the outset. I have got into the habit of not thinking about it, and I am finding this life rather to my liking. I study singing and the harp a great deal. It seems to me that I like them better since I no longer have a music master, or rather, it is because I have a better one. Monsieur Le Chavoyen Dansny, that gentleman I told you about whom I sang with at Madame de Meltois, is good enough to come here every day and sing with me for hours at a time. He is extremely nice. He sings like an angel and composes very pretty tunes for which he also writes the words. What a shame he is a knight of Malta. It seems to me that, were he to marry, he would make his wife very happy. He is gentle and charming. He never seems to be paying me a compliment, and yet everything he says is flattering. He corrects me constantly in music and in other things, but... There is so much enthusiasm and good humor mingled with his criticism that it is impossible not to be grateful. He has only to look at you, and you think he is saying something agreeable. On top of all that, he is most obliging. For example, yesterday, he was invited to an important concert, but he chose to stay the whole evening at Mama's. 
I was exceedingly pleased, for when he is not there, nobody talks to me, and I am bored. But when he is there, we sing and chat to one another. He always has something to tell me. He and Madame de Meltoy are the only two people I really like. But farewell, my dear friend. I have promised to get by heart a little aria whose accompaniment is very difficult, and I don't wish to break my word. I shall go back to my work until he arrives. From 7 August 17 Letter 8 The Presidente de Terval to Madame de Volanche. I could not be more sensible of the confidence you place in me, Madame, nor could anyone be more anxious than I to establish Mademoiselle de Volanche in society. It is indeed with all my heart that I wish her happiness, which I am sure she deserves, and which I am certain may be safely entrusted to your wisdom. I am not acquainted with Monsieur le Grand de Jacot, but, since you have honored him by your choice, I can only form the most advantageous opinion of him. I shall simply send my best wishes, madame, for a marriage as happy and successful as my own, which is also your doing, and for which my gratitude increases every day. May the happiness of your daughter be your reward for the happiness you have obtained for me. And may the best of friends be also the most blessed of mothers. I am truly sorry I may not offer you the expression of my sincere good wishes in person, and make the acquaintance of Mademoiselle de Valanche as soon as I would wish. Since your kindness to me has been truly that of a mother, I may surely expect from her the tender affection of a sister. Would you kindly beg her, madame, to extend those feelings to me? Until such time I am in a position to deserve them. I intend to stay in the country for the whole period of Monsieur de Torvel's absence. I am spending this time enjoying and benefiting from the company of the estimable Madame de Rosemonde. This woman is always charming. Her great age takes nothing away from her. She has not lost her memory or her sense of fun. Only in body she is eighty-four years old. In spirit she is but twenty. Our retirement here is enlivened by her nephew, the Vicomte de Vaumont, who has consented to give up a few days of his time for us. I only knew him by reputation, and that gave me very little desire to get to know him better, but he seems to me to be worthier than people think. Here where he is not affected adversely by the social whirl, he shows a surprising capacity for serious conversation, and blames himself for his misdemeanors with unusual candor. He confides in me most freely, and I lecture him very severely. You, who know him, will agree it would be wonderful to make a convert of him, but despite his promises... I am well aware that a week in Paris will make him forget all my sermons. 
At least his stay here will somewhat restrict the way he normally behaves, and I think that judging from how he generally conducts his life, the best thing he could do is to do nothing at all. He knows that I am engaged in writing you, and he is asked to send you his regards. Be so good as to accept mine also, and do not doubt that I remain your sincere friend, etc. From the Chateau de 9, August 17. Letter 9. Madame de Valange to the Presidente de Terval. I have never been in any doubt, my dear young friend, about your friendship, nor the sincere interest you take in all of my concerns. But it is not to clarify this point, which is, I trust, henceforth understood between us that I am sending you this reply. I believe it is imperative that I should have a few words with you about the Vicomte de Vermont. I confess, I never expected to come across that name in your letters. Indeed, what can you two have in common? You do not know this man. Where could you have learned about the soul of a libertine? You talk about his unusual candor. <laughs> Oh, yes, Valmont's candor really must be very unusual. He is even more duplicious and dangerous than he is charming and seductive, and never from his most tender years has he taken one step or spoken one word without having some scheme or other. Never has he had a scheme which was not dishonorable or wicked. My dear, you know me. You know that among the virtues I try to acquire, tolerance is the one I most cherish. So, if the Valmont were carried along by the fire of his passion, or if, like a thousand others, he were led astray into errors common of the age, then, while blaming him for his conduct, I could sympathize with him. I should hold my tongue and wait for him to turn over a new leaf and once again earn the esteem of the respectable people. But that is not Valmont. His conduct is the result of his principles. He can calculate how far a man may permit himself to do dreadful deeds without compromising himself. And so, that may be wicked and cruel with impunity. He has chosen women to be his victims. I shall not stop to count all the women he has seduced. But how many of them has he not ruined? These scandalous stories do not reach your ears in the modest seclusion you live in. I could tell you some which would make you shudder. But your sight, as pure as your soul, would be sullied by such images. You are certain that the Vermont will never pose a danger for you? and that you have no need of such weapons to defend yourself. All I will say to you is that among all the women he has pursued, whether or not he has had any success with them, there is not one who has not reason to regret it. Madame de Maltoy is the sole exception to this rule. She is the only one to have been able to resist and control his wicked behavior. I must admit that this aspect of her life is the one which does her most credit to my way of thinking, and it was sufficient to validate her completely in the eyes of society. 
whatever reckless behaviour she may have been blamed for at the beginning of her widowhood. In any case, my dear, what age, experience, and most of all friendship, give me the right to say to you that people are starting to notice that Beaumont is not around, and if they get to know that he has stayed alone with you and his aunt, your reputation will be in his hands. And that is the worst misfortune that can befall any woman. I advise you then to persuade his aunt not to keep him any longer, and if he insists on staying, I think you should not hesitate to leave yourself. Why should he stay? What can he be doing in the country? If you were to have his movements watched, I am certain you would discover that he has only been placing himself in more convenient position to carry out some blackguardly deed in the neighbourhood. But, though we may not remedy the evil, let us make sure it does not happen to us. Farewell, my dear friend. The marriage of my daughter has been delayed a little. The Comte de Jacob, whom we were daily expecting, writes to say that his regiment is in Corsica. And, as there are still war manoeuvres in progress... It will be impossible for him to get away before winter. It is most inconvenient. But it gives me hope that we shall now have the pleasure of seeing you at the wedding. I should have been disappointed if it had taken place without you. Goodbye. I am unreservedly and sincerely yours. P.S. Remember me. To the Madame de Rosemonde, who, as ever, has my loving regard, as she well deserves. From 11 August 17. I hope you enjoyed letters 6 through 9. There's more where that came from. Catch me next time. Letters 10 through 15. Just to warn you, I have a cold, so I sound a little funny in letter 10 and 11. And then my cold starts to go away and I start to sound a little bit more normal, like myself. And that's normal. <laughs> With a little wink. Uh-uh. Can you see it? Can you feel it? All right. Have a good evening. And I'll catch you later. Bye.